Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Barton. I'm Alexi White. I'm Karima Talwar Kapoor. And I'm Alvin Tejo. On today's pod, we'll check in on Ontario's COVID numbers, reflect on the Financial Accountability Office report on autism services, discuss the latest MPP to be ejected from the PC caucus. It's a, a, a real a real gang that's forming there and speculate wildly about possible Ontario cabinet shuffle uh, that might happen before the summer is out. Uh, we will not today notably be talking about the daily drips of information about the ongoing We Charity fiasco that's happening in Ottawa. Uh, there's only so much, so many pods in a row that I can, we can stand to talk about that. But if you're worried, and I know that I'm worried about uh, fewer wee puns in this week's show, you can forget that idea faster than Bill Morneau forgets who paid for $40,000 in his family vacations. Ouch. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. What a clusterfuck. So after a f- number of weeks of steady decline, the rolling average of new COVID cases in Ontario ticked back up this week. Uh, a spike in cases among people under 40 seems to be the contributing factor to the rise. And the Ford government was quick to chastise young people for going, uh, quote unquote, hog wild, a phrase that was all the rage during the Second World War, according to the Google Ngram viewer. Uh, good to see our premier is keeping in touch with the youths. Uh, but meanwhile, most of Ontario is now in stage three of the reopening. So as of today, a bunch more regions, including Hamilton, Durham, Niagara, and York region officially joined the rest of Ontario that have reached stage three, which leaves only Peel, Toronto, and Windsor, Essex, which have been kind of the hot spots for outbreaks uh, in limbo. The government says these regions will move to stage three when, quote, local trends of public health indicators demonstrate readiness. So any quick takes on how things are proceeding? Well, I, I guess my only one comment is, is that a lot of the narrative around young people now being increasingly identified as having COVID is talked about around people partying or not keeping their distance. Whereas I, I think that there is a fair um, argument to be made that it's also this cohort that is being demanded to go back to work. So whether it's um, to work in a restaurant or to work in a bar or to work in a in a store. And so I think that there is a little bit of a tension between this narrative that's shaping up that young people just can't stop partying versus actually needing to go to work because their workplaces have opened up. And There is an interesting um, take by John Shell on Twitter, actually, and and he kind of he raised the issue of the SECRA, which is the world's worst acronym, but the Commercial Rent Assistance Program and sort of just identifying that the pressure that many of these businesses are facing have much to do with rent. And so the failure of the Commercial Rent Assist Program has a lot to do with why businesses are pushing to reopen. And then these are the very businesses that tend to employ younger workers. So I think that, yeah, I'd push back against the narrative a little bit and think about the broader issues at hand. I mean, one of the things I've been concerned about that I read about recently about the pandemic and specifically how it's affected women is that we're at a 30-year all-time low for women participating in the economy. 
And I'm not sure how much people are talking about that, but that's a real concern. Um, some people are tying it with the need for childcare and concerns about um, going back to school. Uh, I think there's a lot uh, that we need to unpack there, but it's definitely something that uh, I think policymakers and uh, and the media and the public aren't necessarily thinking about as much. And it's that's a big issue, and I think we should be concerned. Yeah. Can I just pick up on that? That really concerns me, the sort of three-decade regression in women's labor market participation, mostly because it's being framed as an issue of families with children. But I mean, I don't have kids. And every time I see that data, I feel like the image of Mad Men comes to my mind, the, the TV show. And it's just not a place that I think any of us would want to be working in. And so, yeah, that's that's just every time I see that data point, I also have like the visual imagery of Mad Men um, popping up in my mind. And that makes me really nervous. Yeah, no. And when I hear uh, the sort of common thing between both of the issues you both raised is uh, perhaps public lack of complexity in the way that we approach uh, things related to this that I think um, you know, right now, this is a government that is getting quite high approval ratings, as we've talked about many times on this pod, for their handling of the pandemic. And certainly, I think they've they've done a better job on the comms throughout as this has happened. And I've seen, you know, they've they've I think in some ways effectively communicated the very basics of the public health direction. But we need a government that is doing more than just the basic, you know what it takes to keep yourself personally safe. Um, These underlying issues are going to take such a huge toll. And I'm hoping that more people get tuned into that and they become more evident to people over time because the scars that this is going to leave in our society, like um, a generation of kids not going to school, women coming out of the workforce in record numbers, like that's going to hold us back for years and years and years. Uh, So on one heavy policy topic note to... Another, uh, the Financial Accountability Office released a report on autism services in Ontario. We haven't talked about autism uh, for quite some time, uh, but this was a really interesting report. The Ford government had committed to introducing a new need-based Ontario autism program by 2021, and this report was intended to help MPPs understand some of the design scenarios and how these uh, will impact things like program budget, service level, the number of children served, and and wait lists. So a little bit of pre-policy work into a potential reboot of this program. So Alexi, you uh, read the report and put together a quick summary. So I'm curious if we can go to you to walk us through the high-level details. Yeah, sure. Uh, so some of the basic stats I think are worth summarizing up front before we get into these scenarios, because it's often hard to just comprehend the scope of this issue. So a few things. The uh, the FAO estimates there are about 42,000 children with autism in Ontario. Uh, behavioral therapy programs uh, help children with autism improve their language communication and social skills, and these can cost up to $95,000 per year, depending on the individual needs of the child. Over the past five years, spending on autism services grew at an average annual rate of 34%, so up to $608 million in 2019-20, uh, yet waitlists have grown even faster than that at a rate of nearly 50% a year for the past decade. And that's partly because of expanded eligibility put in place under the previous liberal government. And so there are now 27,600 children on the waitlist, representing 75% of all registered children in the program. 
So that's a pretty gloomy picture. Uh, and here's what the FAO scenarios look like. So scenario one, with a current $600 million budget, if the province was to maintain needs-based service level similar to the program that was in place when the liberals left office, approximately 18,000 children would be able to access needs-based services. That would be an increase of about 8,700 from last year, and the wait list would drop to about 23,000. Scenario two, if they lower the service levels, uh, as they the PCs proposed to do last year before reversing course, they could increase the number of children who receive needs-based support and reduce the wait list, um, but you'd have to reduce average service levels by 56% to only providing about $13,000 per child uh, in order to completely eliminate the wait list while keeping the budget at $600 million. And then the third scenario they looked at, in order to eliminate the wait list entirely and maintain service levels at the about $30,000 per child average that they're at right now, the province would need to increase the budget by a further $800 million to $1.4 billion a year. Yeah, so uh, Minister Todd Smith, uh, who is, of course, Children, Community, and Social Services, who administers this program, released a statement saying his government is determined to get this right and will continue to support children and youth during the transition to a new needs-based system. The opposition parties were predictably quick to pounce, arguing that the report proves before government has failed these children. One notable comment came from Laura Kirby McIntosh, who is the head of the Ontario Autism Coalition, who said, families have been asked to endure more than anyone should. On a policy level, I feel anger. On a parental level, I feel grief. I'm just curious for uh, our takeaways from the report and uh, you know the reaction to it. I would say kudos first to the FAO just for doing this report. I think this is the kind of thing. Agreed. This is the kind of thing that's 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 great, uh, and another reason why it's so uh, excellent to have these kinds of uh, third party. Um, deep analyses where you can really get some of the data all in one place, looking at a couple of different uh, options for programs dispassionately uh, with an eye to just just providing information to the debate because this is a this is a tough one to understand and the the landscape of autism has just changed so much over the past decade and I think that's uh, you know that's hard for for people to understand. I mean, it's you, you sort of say you know, where was this issue 10, 10 years ago? Uh, and the answer was that there was a tiny, tiny fraction of people actually receiving any kind of services at all. Uh, and the need has grown tremendously, partly just because we've recognized more need and the services just haven't been able to keep up with that. And I think the other main takeaway is uh, one we've probably talked about before on the pod, but just this issue, uh, this is a thankless issue. I mean, this is one where the liberal previous liberal government invested you know, $300 million uh, to try to fix it, and it turned into a huge boondoggle. Uh, similarly, the PCs uh, have increased the budget further, and it's still a huge issue for them. So it's tough. You know, the, really, the only solution is to put more money into it and, and to provide these children with the services they need. Uh, and I just think that this government especially is going to be in a tricky situation with that because uh, there's really no way out for them. So I'm interested to see where where Minister Todd Smith takes this uh, as we head into 2021. Totally. I think um, on, a, on a previous podcast, uh, when we covered this, Sam made the point that governments for years and uh, have not funded this properly and the rate of growth was uh, just astonishing. The other thing that I think it is, it really does show how much of a colossal failure the PC previous program was. Despite the fact that there's a wait list, $29,000 per recipient was reduced to 8000 And, you know, that's what they used to say they were going to reduce the wait list. I really feel for these families who, you know, uh, aren't receiving the aid that they they need to receive, um, have a completely uncertain future um, in this program because, you know, while they might have received 
Uh, well, we are spending lots of money this year. I'm sure the government will say that a uh, good fraction of it is one-time payments. Uh, so you know, there's not a lot of certainty. And I'm glad that there are uh, offices like this that are clearly pointing out, you know, what the problem is. Some governments just need to take the hit and spend the 1.4 billion. Yeah, I would just say I think that a part of like this entire issue is just so as everyone has said, um, messed up and requires significant investment. And I feel like the like there's a large hesitation to doing so because it's often framed as like a, a social services issue and not I th- and I think that if we were to reframe it as a healthcare issue, thousands of children getting access to the healthcare that they need um, for an additional investment of $800 million doesn't sound so bad. We know in, in traditional healthcare that a small minority of people who have multiple comorbidities and complex conditions use or have high healthcare utilization costs. And so we just don't extend that same grace uh, to families and children um, who have autism. And I, I, I wonder if really poking on the fact that this is a healthcare issue could help to change the broader public sentiment around it. Yeah, that's a really good point, Grima. And it reminds me also, the, the other piece of this that we don't talk about uh, nearly as much uh, is all the adults who have developmental disabilities uh, who are part of the developmental services system in Ontario, uh, which is just as badly chronically underfunded, if not more so, uh, to the point where children, uh, both in school and outside of school, actually get comparatively, n- not close to enough money, but comparatively much more support than adults do. And so you have this problem of this cliff where these these children hit an age where they age out of the children's programs and they go into these adults' Uh, developmental services programs and they get a fraction of what they did before. And because it's not children anymore, they tend to just get forgotten. I mean, there's just so little coverage of uh, the lack of funding in developmental services in Ontario. And so if we really started to look at this as a healthcare issue, as a, a full life cycle of of services for people, um, we you know there's so many more holes in the system that need to get plugged uh, and there's just no justification for the continued uh, dragging of our feet. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, who knows the four government might show up with a giant truck of money to, uh, fix some of these problems, but I'm not holding my breath. So actually maybe on to, uh, the Ford government on Tuesday night, the premier's office released a statement saying that Cambridge MPP Belinda Karahalios had been ejected from the PC caucus. This was about an hour after, uh, the MPP broke ranks with her party and voted against bill 195, the infamous, omnibus COVID response bill, which was passed just before the legislature adjourned for the rest of the summer. Uh, if you want to know the details, you can go back and listen to our whole pod about that. Carhalios called the bill unnecessary overreach. She said it essentially silences every single Ontario MPP on the most important issue facing our legislature today. So uh, here she was referring to a section of the bill that allows for continued use of the government's extraordinary powers currently being exercised on the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act, except now uh, without the need for ongoing public health emergency uh, and without oversight and accountability from the legislature. 
So MPP Randy Hillier, who is himself expelled from the PC caucus last year, noted that the premier is relentless in his demand for total compliance and subservience and said that caucus members are not people, but chess pieces at his disposal. Uh, representing constituents is unacceptable and anathema to his addiction to absolute authority. So typically strong language from MPP Hillier. If MPP Karahalios' name sounds familiar, it's because she's married to Jim Karahalios, a corporate lawyer and founder of activist group. Groups, axe the carbon tax and take back our PC party, who was recently disqualified from running in the federal conservative party's leadership election for making racist Islamophobic remarks about another candidate's campaign chair. So this is a story where I'm not sure we have clear heroes uh, and villains, but it is a story where the PCs have caught, lost another caucus member. So is this standing up for democracy? Do her, we see her crossing the floor anytime soon, or is she just going to be hanging out with uh, Randy in the corner? Uh, takes on this rather dramatic, unexpected development in the legislature. I mean, the Carajalios are not heroes in any sense. And the fewer of them we have in politics, I think the better off we'll be. I, as you mentioned, uh, Jim Carajalios is uh, her husband, and he's really just a POS. Like, he is a terrible person who doesn't deserve the spotlight in Canadian politics. This is a guy who is too homophobic, too racist, too uh, too much of, uh, of an anti-immigrant and religious zealot for the conservative party leadership race because they didn't let him run. And they already have Derek Sloan, who is the standard bearer for those things. And this guy is over the top on that. So I think the MPP uh, knew exactly what she was doing and who she represents and what button she was pushing and essentially was daring the premier to kick her out. And maybe, 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 maybe there is actually something legitimate to gripe about in this bill. But that doesn't forgive any, any of her previous stances any of her beliefs, any of her votes, any of the affiliations that she keeps around. So some people I don't think should be amplified, and the less we hear of her and her husband, I think the better. I prefer politics to not be argued at the margins and to amplify the voices of people who I don't think are anywhere near in line with where the majority of Canadians are. Whew. All right. Yeah, and uh, I assume that uh, she will not be joining any other parties because I don't think there are uh, any Greens or Liberals or NDPers who uh, want her in their caucus at this point. Um, but uh, maybe we'll see her over with Randy Hillier in the, the corner of independence that seems to be growing bigger and bigger. The only thing that I would add is just that I thought it, it was interesting because uh, there was some narratives around this that remind me of the way that people talked about um, Jody Wilson-Raybould standing up uh, against Justin Trudeau for you know for what's right and some of the um, the rhetoric that came down from Andrew Shearer that was just uh, over the top in that situation about Trudeau's actions and calling on him to resign and the, the courage that she showed and just sort of just juxtaposing and recognizing of course that it's a huge stretch to say that these are anything like each other but um, in a situation in which uh, you do have a, a, a a backbencher in this case, but or someone in cabinet standing up and saying, look, this is what I believe in. Um, it's interesting how you can have such different reactions within the same political parties. Uh, and and I'm sure across all of uh, the political parties as well. I mean, the opposition was quick to jump on this as a, a demonstration of the, the uh, undemocratic nature of the 
PC leadership. And um, it's not as if when they're in power, other parties don't do exactly the same thing in this kind of case. So uh, just just uh, noting the the hypocrisy, I guess, of, uh, of politics today. You know, there was something interesting that I saw the other day when they were talking about this now makes 12 independent MPPs is that this that's the new threshold for party status. And in theory, yes, they could come together and create their own party in the in the legislature and potentially not even have to actually caucus together, but they could divide the resources. But I don't really think that'll happen. You have eight of the 12 being liberal members. And then the other four are Mike Schreiner, who's the leader of the Green Party. Uh, the three who've been kicked out from the PCs are Jim Wilson, who is uh, the former leader of the party. Randy Hillier, who is a very right wing, very landowner, libertarian. And and Belinda Carajalios, who we just talked about. But you know, it it does it did make me think of uh, an interesting time in Canadian politics back in two thousand and one, where there was an example of something like this happening when a group of disgruntled Canadian Alliance MPs who were upset with Stockwell Day left the Canadian uh, Alliance and formed their own caucus called the Democratic Representative Caucus, which immediately joined the last iteration of the Progressive Conservative Party led by Joe Clark to form the PCDRC. Uh, which was recognized in the House as a new caucus and actually surpassed the NDP for third-party status. Now, it didn't last long because the Conservatives got their act together under Stephen Harper and created the Conservative Party of Canada, but it does show you that things in Parliament can be done differently, and it has been done before. Um, but I don't necessarily think this will be the uh, the time to do that. Yeah, it's one thing if it's like the Liberals and the Greens or, you know, somebody maybe like a, you know, a center-right conservative joining the liberal party. It's very different when it's like these sort of far-right people. I, because I was thinking about Randy Hiller, I checked out his Twitter, and I think he re- he was recently sharing some COVID vaccination, you know, conspiracy theory. And I was kind of like that, like, you just can't touch that with a 10-foot pole if you're, if you're the liberal party. Well, moving us on to our last topic today, with the hot weather upon us, speculation about an impending Ontario cabinet shuffle is also heating up. It's been just over a year since the last one, when Ford also got rid of his controversial staff, Dean French. There's someone we haven't thought about for a while. Ford was asked about it back in June, and he didn't deny he was continuing a shovel, saying, our cabinet's great, but I have 20 caucus members that could jump into cabinet in a heartbeat and be just as good. So interesting language from the premier. There's been plenty of chatter in the past month from the various talking heads about who has been performing well and whose time is up. Bob Hepburn wrote, for example, about how Minister Mary Lee Fullerton in long-term care's time might be up after her poor handling of the COVID situation in that sector. Of course, we've talked about many times, fire leche referring to the Minister of Education uh, has been trending on Twitter and been a problem for them. So my favorite segment we do uh, every so often, if we were Ford or we were advising Ford, who would we shuffle in the summer and when and how would we roll out this shuffle, uh, particularly given sort of the situation that we're in right now? I mean, I definitely think there'll be a cabinet shuffle. And if they're smart, they should do it as quickly as possible because when the House rises this summer, it gives potentially new ministers more time to adjust to their new portfolios and learn about what's going on. You know, I'll take some of those bets. I think uh, I think Lecce will move. And I think if he does move, he'll go to long-term care um, because there's a lot of issues there and he can try to be the fixer of the government and uh, have sort of that be the role um, that he takes on. 
Uh, I'd be curious to see if uh, Phillips or Bethlehem Falvey or Fidelity, any of the economic or financial uh, ministers move around. If they do, I think that might be an indication that Doug's a little bit concerned about his own leadership because some of those people have uh, expressed their desires before to uh, potentially take over the reins. I think Romano, Thompson, and Fullerton might be on the chopping block, so they could get demoted or, or kicked out of cabinet altogether. I don't think their performance has been... Uh, notable in a positive way and I think if this leader if if Doug Ford wants to you know show a new side he might promote some uh, younger people some people of color I definitely see someone like Pramit uh, Zakaria being promoted from associate minister to a full minister I'd think of someone like Stan Cho who is a Asian Canadian uh, Amy Fee or Natalie Kusindova who are young women who are articulate and uh, have showed um, a knack for for local retail politics recently so um, yeah I think they should do a shuffle it's it's halfway through the mandate and this is a good opportunity for them uh, I agree with everything, most of everything Alvin said in terms of especially the people who are likely on the chopping block. Um, and uh, and I think to add to his point about uh, newcomers moving up into cabinet, we already saw in the last shuffle that a government that came into power touting how they had made cabinet so much smaller and they were so much more responsible than the previous liberal government with their huge cabinet, uh, pretty much reverse course on that. And um re-expanded uh, the size of cabinet um, the, on their first opportunity to do so. Um, even bringing in, I think they have five associate ministers now, uh, yeah, which was... They have five. Yeah. So that was a, a, you know, there were already a number of associate ministers under the liberals. I don't think they ever made it to five. Uh, but... Um, that could be a, a something to watch, see if the number of associate ministers continues to increase or they further split some of the portfolios into uh, multiple portfolios. And I mean, the incentives there, we've talked about this before, are are just obvious. Uh, the more ministers you have, the more uh, staff you're able to hire. And those people do not just, you know, political and communications work, but also they knock on doors for you during elections. Uh, the closer we get to another election, they're going to be thinking about uh, all those kinds of considerations. You can also get a more profile in a local community for a member in a riding that might be a tough battle for them. So there's all kinds of reasons for them to just continue to balloon the size of the Ontario cabinet. Uh, so I'm betting that we don't see as many people maybe leaving cabinet entirely, but certainly uh, maybe jobs are split and uh, some of the more high profile people who have had some trouble uh, end up uh, being pushed down into uh, less exciting roles. Um, a few people, I think, I think Todd Smith has actually performed pretty well in the social services job from a PC perspective in that he has not uh, had any scandals and has generally been quiet, which I think is the only way to ride out a PC government when you're in social services. Uh, so I, I could see him sticking around there. I agree Lisa Thompson might leave. I also think, I also think it's possible that Lisa McLeod might be even further demoted uh, given that uh, she had that weird kerfuffle with the uh, Ottawa Senators owner in her uh, yes. role in tourism and culture and sport, uh, if anyone right. still remembers that from last year. Um, but you also have to recognize you, they can't get rid of all of the the women. I mean, they already don't have a lot of women in their cabinet, and they're going to be thinking about that balance too at, at some point, I would assume. And so um, they're going to need to keep uh, some of these people around. But uh, yeah, I could even see Christine Elliott moving out of health, to be honest, um, shake things up a little bit there. That is a hot take. I thought that I had some hot takes. <laughs> But I think moving the Minister of Health, if they do that, moving the Minister of Health in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis, I, I, I think that, that's, that, that, that would be the headline. And I think that they would have to be prepared for a story that would 
like right away with either like you know potentially like christine elliott like either retiring or you know wanting to like something something like that where you know they don't make it about her handling because just how linked the government's approval rating is to COVID-19 if they sort of start signaling that there's a problem with it or that they think there's a problem with it. Um, I, that's, I, I think that, uh, cause, cause I, I, I thought I agree with most of it, but I, I, I would guess that this is going to be, uh, they're going to keep the big players, the, like the main, like the sort of the, the senior ministers mostly in place. Uh, I'd get Peter Beth and Valvey, Rod Phillips, Christine Elliott, finance, health. I think I would. I would. I would bet stay. Leche is is kind of a fifty fifty for me. Um, I think that he there's probably a lot of good reasons to move him, but I think Alvin is absolutely right. You need to see to give him a promotion. Um, otherwise, it sort of looks you tip your hand to there being a problem in in education. Clearly, the education sector seems to think there's a problem with Stephen Leche, but given that they've been so combative, I think they're like. Do they want to appear as though they're caving to that pressure? Is I think a real, uh, a real consideration for them. Um, but on some of the other ministers that might not be as public names, Lisa Thompson, who seems to be only public when it you know is uh, really bad for the government. Um, you know, uh, she also I was looking, thinking back through these ministers' tenures in preparation for the segment, and I, I was kind of like, when was the last time Lisa Thompson was in the news? And it was during the liberal plates fiasco. So yeah, I uh, I think that that's a she. I think she she gets either shuffled or demoted, uh, maybe to an associate minister or something like that. But for the dynamic that you said, Alexi, where it's like you know there's just not a lot of incentive to move people out, I wouldn't be surprised if you know they move people around, but don't want to make it seem like anyone's getting booted off the island. Yeah, unless unless someone comes forward and says uh, they like they could be getting to the point where they're starting to ask people, "Are you running again in the next election?" Because someone could save face by leaving cabinet and saying they're not running anymore, and they have some pretty old people in uh, some of these cabinet roles, like diehard conservatives who've been around for a long time, have been on the bat, were on the opposition benches for many many years, and if they're looking to make room for some of their newer younger stars, then you could see some of those people possibly stepping aside through some kind of arranged announcement that they're not running again. Can I just? Add one thing. I'm not going to speculate on whether there's a cabinet shuffle or not because I just don't know or who would be promoted and who's not. But can we just imagine what transition briefings are going to look like in the midst of a pandemic? Like we, it it's terrible in the best of times. Like thousands of pages, dozens of binders, like whole teams of public servants, kind of compiling all the information that a minister needs to know, dozens of briefings back to back, and now having to do that over Zoom or whatever um, method or software they're using, like that would just suck. And doing that (laughs) in the middle of the summer, I just, I I really would feel for um, my former colleagues. Yeah. I would. I, I think that's a really important point, and actually, I'm going to use that in my bol- in bolstering my argument for Leche not being moved because I think yet yeah, it's not well understood by the public and actually often by the political side how much a cabinet shuffle stalls the government. It's not you know it's not as if you just move these people in and out of jobs and like the whole you, they need to get brief decisions get put on hold and with you know five weeks till the school year starts i think that like i would actually be deeply worried for the school year 
if the Ministry of Education starts focusing more on briefing up a new minister than you know actually you know doing the really heavy lifting i really hope they're doing behind the scenes right now to make sure that we have a you know a school year this year mm-hmm. so um uh, i think that that's a that's a really really important thing uh for you know folks listening to this podcast to know well uh that is all the time we have for today thank you so much for listening we will be back next week for actually our last week of the season we'll be releasing a deep dive on Wednesday and our hundredth episode on Friday. It'll be our last pod. We're going to be taking a break for uh, August and probably the early part of September. And so uh, we will miss you while you're gone. But if you have any thoughts, comments, feedback for us in the meantime, we'll be monitoring our Twitter and our mailbox. You can get at us on Twitter at Ontario loud at Twitter and Ontario loud mail at gmail.com. Thank you uh, as always to our Patreon supporters. If you like what you're hearing, you want to support us on Patreon, head to patreon.com slash Ontario loud, sign up for any of the tiers. It goes a long way to helping this podcast uh, support itself. Finally, Ontario loud is Guru Mattel Workapur, Alexi White, Sam Andre, Alvin Tejo, and myself, Chris Martin. We're supported by amazing volunteers in Aisha Anwar and Harman Mundi. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week.